Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Uh, so we have gone through a few weeks now. There's, there's a couple weeks, and we're, we're sort of culminating in Easter. But so far, we've learned that Jesus claims to be the bread of life, meaning that he satisfies our deepest hunger, the deepest hunger of the human soul. He speaks about himself as the light of the world, that he is the illuminating path, namely himself to eternal life. I am the door, he calls himself, the only way to freedom that we need in order to flourish. He goes to the world of farming, and he says, I am the good shepherd. In a world of danger, uh, we were reminded that Jesus provides and protects. Last week, I am the resurrection and the life, that there is something in the world stronger than death. And today, Jesus will make the outrageously exclusive claim, which says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. In other words, Jesus will make the claim that invalidates all other claims and wrapped up in himself, in the person and the work of Messiah Jesus, wrapped up in in himself is the only way to eternal life. That wrapped up in, in himself is the truth of the world that lights the way, that wrapped up in himself is the source of life that animates all. Things. But before we jump in, help me to pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that, in fact, uh, Lord, you uh, are here. And we're not inviting you into this space. You were already here and have invited us here. We pray, though, that you would make us aware of your presence, Holy Spirit. That you would uh, bring light to blindness today. That you would, uh, uh, Lord, bring those who who may be uh, dead to life today under your word. Uh, For some of us who are feeling discouraged, that you would encourage. For those of us who are feeling proud, that you would humble under the power of your word today. Help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people and help me to remember the things that will be. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord, Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer, and the church said, and the church said, confession time. I don't go to therapy anymore. I used to, so I use this as therapy. Confession time. I hate buffets. I cannot stand buffets. And this is no shade on you if you get really excited about going to that hotel and you find out that there's a buffet breakfast every morning. But me personally, I am not a fan. But at least when you go to a buffet, you know what you're getting right? Like, if that's what you sign up for, that's great. Let me tell you what's worse than a buffet. It's when you go to a restaurant with some friends, and you have a couple who say something like this, why don't we get a bunch of dishes and share? When I tell you that something in me dies, because, you know, I, listen, I want to be a part of the group. I, I, I don't want to be that guy, uh, and I, I want to gel. I, I want to add to the fun, but at the same time, there's an incredible force in me that just doesn't want to share. Like, I, I, just because you can't decide what you want, I don't have to suffer and create a mini buffet where there isn't one. Like, we came to a regular restaurant. I don't want to subscribe to that. Thank you. <laughs> Buffets, nearly endless possibilities, mix and match. 
take this, leave that. It's the dream of many, the bane of others, but it captures the spirit of our age, does it not? The addiction to choices. We're addicted to choices. We want to be free to make choices, endless choices, and buffets scratch that itch. And when I think about my unreasonable posture of contempt towards the concept of buffets, it dawned on me that we take this concept of the buffet and we translate it into religion, into spirituality, into ways of believing, into ways of being human. We live in a world and a culture that offers us a spiritual buffet. Take a bit of Jesus, the nice parts about him, the love and the grace with a dash of progressive humanism. I'd like some amounts of the mental and emotional stability that Buddhist monks have, a splash of this, a bit of that. And the way that it's offered to us is that all roads, all ways, all beliefs basically share the same premise and that they all basically lead us to the same place. It's all the same mountain with different paths and roads leading up to the top. And to say otherwise, for me to stand or for you to go to work or to school and say, or to the gym and say otherwise is tantamount to spewing blasphemous and hateful speech today. But Jesus, the one who is full of grace and forgiveness, will, according to our culture, say something today that will get him banned on Twitter. His IG account is canceled and he's about to get all of his endorsements pulled because of what he's about to say today. Because Jesus today will say that there is only one way. Jesus today will say that there is only one truth. Because Jesus today will say that there is only one life. Come back with me to verse 1, chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. And this is what we need to understand. The first thing that we need to understand about what he says today, because oftentimes when we, when we speak about the exclusivity of Jesus, right, the, uh, about Jesus being the one way, we frame it as fighting words. When, when we hear about Jesus being one way, we frame it as fighting words. We come at it with our professor hat on, our philosopher's pipe, and our fighting gloves because we're ready for an apologetical fight. But the context of these words is not contentious. It is not adversarial. It is pastoral. These words are spoken as good news of great comfort. These aren't fighting words. These are spoken to bring about peace, not war. Bring comfort, not arguments, as, so, as they are so often used. And so the first thing we need to understand about the exclusivity of Jesus, and what I, what I mean when I say that is, is that Jesus has this world-shattering claim that there is one way to God, exclusively. We need to understand that this is a pastoral reality. This is designed to bring us comfort, not anxiety. And I want to remind you of where the disciples are at this point. They are, they are a day or so out. Just imagine this. They are a day or so out from seeing their Messiah, the person with, where, where all their hopes and dreams are wrapped up in, be brutally murdered. They're anxious. They were in what we know as the upper room, and Jesus had dropped, just, just dropped a bombshell. He reveals that one of them was about to betray him. He reveals that he was about to go away for a while. He reveals that Peter, the, the, the chief of the uh, disciples, the chief of the apostles, was about to deny him. 
You can imagine the tension in the room at this point as Jesus says this. And so it's right that Jesus would encourage them and tell them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. So I'm going away. One of you will betray me. Peter, you will deny me, but don't let your hearts be troubled. Place your trust in God. And is this not a word for us? How often do I look or you look, we look at our own circumstances, at our own lack of uh, uh, zeal or growth, at our track record. We look at the opposition that is coming up against us and we allow our hearts to be troubled because we've believed the lie that the kingdom of God breaking into our communities and into our homes and into our workplaces and into our lives depends on us. But believe in God. Trust in him. Place your allegiance and your hope and your dependence in him. So the first thing, the first thing we have to say about Jesus' claim to be the only way is that it's meant to produce comfort, not contentious pride, which is often the case, is it not? That we have the scriptures. I got the Bible. That we have the truth that we have the life. It's ridiculous. Listen, how ridiculous is it that something that we have contributed absolutely nothing to, you were not a thought in your great granddaddy's mind when Jesus came to earth. And yet we take this truth that we have been incorporated into by grace and we use it as a weapon against others. It's as if God was looking down the corridor of time and drafted us in his fantasy football league because of something we can bring to the table, because of our yardage. We act like we are the way, and we are the truth, and we are the life, as if everything we have is a pure and unadulterated gift. But Jesus is going to continue, and he'll begin to explain that even though he's going away, even though one of them will betray him, that he is going to prepare a place so that wherever he will be, we will be with him as well. Because remember, he just, told Peter back, uh, he just told Peter back in chapter 13, where I'm going, you can't come yet. Like we were together for three years, but where I'm going, you cannot follow yet because the path had not been opened. And so Jesus is saying, all right, I'm gonna head out. I'm out. I'm checking out. I'm gonna trailblaze a path for y'all to come and join with me. But you already know the way. And good old Thomas, he responds this way. He gets a bad rap, but, but Thomas, he's good value. He says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. We, we, don't, we don't have an address. We don't have Google Maps. We don't, we don't know where you're going. How can we actually know the way? We need a little more information. We need a little more context. We need an address at least. Do we go east, north, south, west? Like, where do we actually go? We cannot figure out the directions, Jesus, if we don't know the destination. Like, where are you going? It's like we, we jump into the car and we say, hey, Siri, give me the directions. She's like, where? I, I, I can't tell you how to go if I don't know where you are going. And this, I want to pause here, and this is where the whole all roads lead to heaven conversion, a conversation breaks down because the major religions teach very different things about where we end up, about where we are 
going, as it were. 14% of the world's population, 1.1 billion people, follow the Hindu religion today. And while there are varieties and sects, it broadly teaches how our souls can escape the endless cycle of birth, rebirth, and death in this material world. The goal is this, to return to the Brahman, this impersonal source of all life. Another 7% of the world's population, about 546 million people, follow Buddhism, which is birthed out of Hinduism. And again, while there is complex variety, I'm not flattening out these belief systems. The goal of Buddhism is not so much to be found in an afterlife. In fact, uh, it's uh, a little bit uh, wasteful or, or silly to even think about that because in the end, everything is an illusion. And to even ask about the afterlife is pointless. Rather, the goal is coming to the realization that you don't even exist, that everything is illusion, that we must detach from everything, both physical and spiritual. The second largest religion, Islam, is comprised of 24% of the world's population, 1.9 billion people, and the fastest growing. The question Islam is trying to answer is how we can live in submission, which is what the word Islam means, submission, to Allah's ethical will revealed in the Quran and exemplified in the life of their prophet Muhammad. The goal is being to enter into an eternal paradise called El Jana, not the one on Canterbury Road. Although, there is a measure of paradise when you have their chicken if you haven't had it, right? But that's where the word comes from. It's, an, it's this beautiful paradise. And that's where you end up, where there is no lack and no need. So you have Hindu teaching which says we lose our personalities as we are folded into the Brahman, sort of like a, a drop of water into the ocean. We have a Buddhist teaching which doesn't so much worry about an afterlife and it's just trying to help us to see that all of life is illusion and enlightenment is reached when we finally realize that we don't even exist. Islamic teaching says we must submit to the law of God and by our own virtue and our strength and our obedience we get to enter into jhana. All very different goals, all very different destinations which carry with them all very different Paths. And so this modern, progressive Western shtick that says it doesn't really matter what you believe because eventually we all kind of end up in the same place doesn't work. Because here in the West, we've been living in the wake of the effort of being able to flatten out all of our differences. Like it's, we, we try to flatten out all our differences because it sounds nice and it sounds humble and it sounds non-threatening. But the reality is we must, we must let these various voices speak and allow for their differences and then and then we are tempted to add Jesus to the spiritual buffet and we say things like well maybe Jesus is a way or he's my truth he's my way or maybe maybe Jesus is the best way when I look at the tasting platter of religions the buffet of faith Jesus is my choice my preference but Jesus does not claim to be the best. Jesus does not place himself in the company of Buddha or Muhammad. And let me just say this, that I have deep, loving, personal, mutually respectful friendships with atheists and agnostics and Muslims and Hindus and Muslims. And to, they know what I believe, I know what they believe, and there is genuine mutual love and respect for one another. I do not believe that I'm intrinsically a better human being 
or that they are less than or stupid for believing what they believe. And some of us in this room right now need to repent of our religious pride because we carry, because we follow Jesus as if it's by our own virtue that we follow Jesus. Right? Am, am I alone here? As if it was by, uh, uh, because of my intelligence or, or my power that we are disciples of Jesus. Jesus stands against all of that, both religious pride and people thinking that you can just add them to a spiritual buffet. Jesus refuses, listen to me, he refuses to be made one choice amongst many. He refuses to be used as a pawn to make you, Christian, think that you are better than others. No, rather than feed arguments or feed your pride, Jesus offers us a whole different path, not of this world, entered into this world, not to condemn the world, but for the sake of it. Because while other religions may offer peace, this worldly or next or paradise, or being free from pain, all of these things can be intensely, intensely impersonal. Who doesn't want peace? Hands up! Who doesn't want peace in this room? Who doesn't want to be free from pain and grief? Who doesn't want to be free from the limitations that disease and bodily deterioration place on us? And for so many of us, that's heaven. But Jesus doesn't offer us heaven. And you're like, oh, I came to church this morning and pastor said, Jesus doesn't offer us heaven. Jesus doesn't offer you heaven. Follow with me. Because he offers us something so much better than heaven. Verse 6 says this. Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also from now on, you do know him and have seen him. I want you to notice something, that in the Bible, pictures of the unseen realm are very few and far between. In the book of Corinthians, Paul speaks about entering the third heavens, and he says, I can't even write down what I saw. I, I don't even dare write down what I saw. Because the focus is not necessarily, listen to this, the focus is not necessarily on the realm or the space, but on who occupies it. Heaven is heaven not because there's no pain. Heaven is heaven not because there are no tears. Heaven is heaven not because there is no disease. Heaven is heaven not because angels are there. Heaven is heaven not because there is abundance and no lack whatsoever. Heaven is heaven because the Father occupies that space. That is heaven. And so any version of the afterlife that doesn't include and is motivated by and is consumed with the Father that Jesus reveals is not heaven. It is a different place. And it is not unloving to say, just as much as, as it's not unloving to say that you can't take a submarine to the sun. It's not bigoted of me to say that you can't jump in the Georges River and end up in New York City. It's, an ontolo it's a reality of the world. It just is. There is no heaven without the Father that is revealed in and through Jesus. And so when we enter our interfaith dialogues, 
we need to understand that we are aiming at vastly different realities here. The destination isn't just some otherworldly impersonal heaven. No, the destination of humanity is living before the presence of the Father. That is the gospel. That is our goal. And therefore, the most loving thing that Jesus can say is, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That is the most loving thing that Jesus could ever say. There's no paying off the bouncer at the service exit in the back to get in, right? There's no, my friends are already in, so can I just slide through? There's, there's no jumping the fence here. There's none of that. There is no way to the Father's presence except through the life and the death the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, the God-man. And if there is no access through any other road, the most loving thing we could ever do for our friends and our family and our other believing neighbors is to hold out the offer of eternal life that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone because it's Jesus who opens up the way through his body. In the Old Testament, the people of God had a physical temple that they, 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 they visited. First they had a tabernacle and then they had a, a physical steady temple. And in the temple, uh, there was this place called the Holy of Holies, right in the center of it, that would house, as it were, God's presence. God chose to make his presence be felt, and and it, it housed his presence right in the center of the temple. And right outside the Holy of Holies, it was the holy place, and what, what separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was this thick curtain. And once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And with that in mind, just, just, I want you to picture that. This humongous complex, incense and menorahs and trees painted on the wall, carved in gold, and this humongous curtain so thick, and only one person, one man, once a year would enter into that place. With that in mind, the book of Hebrews says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. You don't understand how radical, excuse me, you do not understand how radical this was for the people who first listened to this sermon in the book of Hebrews. For years, all we knew was that one man, one high priest, once a year would be able to go in here. Now I can go in? That by the blood of Jesus, I can enter into the holy places? That I can be in the presence of a holy God? By the new and living way that he what? He opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full of assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The way to the Father, the way to everlasting joy, the way to peace and abundance, the way to the place where we are created for was not, does not come to us by our own achievement. Listen, look at where our achievements have gotten us. Just, just as, as human, if we can just pan out for a moment and turn off Netflix and think about just world, just human history, as far as the mind can go back, look at where our achievements have gotten us. 
Human history is a trail of misery. I don't care how good your latte is or how strong the Wi-Fi is. Human history is a trail of misery. And just when we thought we'd arrived, the 20th century, the bloodiest of them all. And we're not doing so good now in the 21st. We swear we think we're further along than our ancestors, but we're really not. We're, we're really not. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. That because we think we live in this place with air conditioning and electric cars, that somehow we're better. We're, we're better humans than our ancestors. We're going nowhere faster than ever. That's where your Tesla's taking you. Rather, we're not creating heaven on earth. Rather, heaven, the place where the Father is, is purchased for us, is won for us, is secured for us, not because we've found our way up the proverbial mountain, but because he came down it. We cannot get up that mountain. But there was one who came down off the mountain to trailblaze a path for us through his body, through his own sacrifice, through his own obedience, through his own life, through his own death, through his own resurrection and ascension. You see, we are incapable of going up the mountain. But thank God, thank God that he sent his son to come down the mountain to be our human king and representative that we need that will allow God the Spirit to now animate our lives as the people of God for the sake of the world. So how do we find home? How do we get there when we realize that as followers of Jesus, our aim isn't just some impersonal heaven, but heaven is wherever the Father is. That is our true home. And when we understand that the afterlife isn't an escape from earth, but the healing of the earth where God will one day come down and dwell with humanity, then the most loving and gracious thing we can offer the world is not some benign flattening of our differences so we can be liked, but the telling of the truth, the, holding, hum, the humble holding of the truth, that there is no, none, no other than Jesus. There's no life outside of Jesus. That there is no philosophy or religion or worldview that can stand next to him. Jesus refuses to participate in our spiritual buffets. He stands alone. He stands alone as the way. He stands alone as the truth. He stands alone as the life. And as we pledge our allegiance to this King of kings and Lord of lords who has no equals, as we bend the knee as we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, as we humbly offer the world the hope of the world, the path to life. Ah, oh, that, that is just a life that cannot be captured. There's beauty and mystery. And you may be here, and if you don't follow Jesus, my invitation to you is that you would submit to him today that he is kind, that you would realize that he is gentle, that a bruised reed, he will not break, the scriptures say. So come to him with your pain, your doubts, your worries, your weakness, your sin. Your king, the king, is ready to welcome you home. And I want to I wanna end today with something, as, as the band comes up, I want to end today with, with an extended prayer that I'm going to read for us. And it's a prayer that has 
fed my soul over the years. It's a, it's a liturgy of praise to the king of creation. And after this, I just want to say now, after this, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And so if you love Jesus, if you follow Jesus, then this is an invitation for you to uh, visit our communion stations here and in the back as well, and to remember the body and the blood of Jesus together. Our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been too small and too few. For seldom have we considered how specific is the exercising of your authority, extending as it does into the myriad particulars of creation. There is no quarter over which you are not king. And as creation hurdles towards its liberation and redemption, the full implications of your deep lordship are yet to be revealed in countless facets unconsidered. Christ, you are the snow king. You are the maker of all weather. You are the king of sunlight and storms, the king of gray skies and rain. You are the rain king, the sun king, the hurricane king. You are the king of autumn and you are the king of spring. And our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been too small and too few. The old, impotent gods our ancestors once believed in were at their best but imperfect pictures of you, whose strength and goodness and creative majesty and wonderful mystery and love exceed those old rumors as sunlight exceeds the tiny dimness of stars reflected. The fairy tales crafted by our old cultures hinted at you, though they knew it not. Yet their perfect princes and blessed endings were yearnings for all that has found fulfillment in you. You are the Lord of the harvest, the grain king, the wine king, the God of plenty, the God of hearth and home. You are the hill king, the wildflower king, the king of the great bears, the king of canyons. You are the monarch of meadows, the Lord of the lava fields, ruler of the desert wastes. You are the polar king, the rainbow king, the king of the southern cross and the king of the northern lights. You are the king of the rabbits, the lord of the tall trees. You are the god of youth and the god of age. You are the acorn king, the river god, the swamp king, the king of glades, the king of dells. You are the ruler of all the hummingbirds. You are the house lord, the crag king, the lord of the bees, king of the walruses, commander of the rhinos, lord of the lightning bugs. You are the cave lord, the mountain king, the ruler of the grassy plains. You are the god of the valleys. You are the captain of the clouds. You are the wolf king, the king of cockatoos. Our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been too small and too few. For your claim over creation is vast. You are the Lord of Antarctica. You are the King of California, the King of the Scottish Hills and the, and the King of the Nile. You are the weaver of the unseen fabrics of the world. You are the Lord of atoms, the ruler of electrons, the Lord of gravity, and the King of quarks. Your dominion 
enfolds the earth and rises beyond it to the furthest extremes of the stars. You are the Lord of the vast empty spaces. You are the king of the constellations, the black hole king, Lord of Nova's exploding. You are the Lord of speeding light, high king of galaxies. You are the king of Orion and the king of the moon. And yet still, even still, our thoughts of you have been too small, too few. You are the God of justice. You are the God of wisdom. You are the God of mercy and you are the God of redemption. You are the Lord of love. All of this is true, but our thoughts of you are still too few. For our minds are too small to conceive of them all, let alone to contain them. You were before all things, you created all things, and in you all things are held together. There is no corner of creation you will fail to redeem. You are the Lord of lords and King of kings, O Jesus Christ. Our King of everything. And, and we compare him to what? And even this is too small. My invitation even as we enter into this space with fear and trembling at the God who cannot be compared, at the God who will refuse to allow himself to be part of a spiritual buffet, to the God who says there is none other, there is no one who can stand next to me. And that's the God who came for us. That's the one who came off the mountain to rescue us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are good. We thank you, Jesus, that you've left. You left the culture of heaven to enter our broken and dark world to bring light. And you comfort us, Lord. You could have left us in the dark in our ignorance, and yet you comfort us with the words, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. May this engender in us a, a broken heart full of love for the world, not religious pride. May this give us the confidence, Lord, to know that you are with us and that you are forever for us. And even as we bend the knee to King Jesus, may we rise with him because we know we are now seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And what we're about to do, the, the spiritual warfare that we are about to enter in as we praise your name. Lord, I pray that darkness and blindness in this room and obstinance against your will would be bound. That the devil would have no say here but that we would proclaim, that we would live out of the reality that you, Jesus, are King of kings and Lord of lords. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. And the church said, amen. amen.